You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. In Ecclesiastes, we discover that a life spent in pursuit of pleasure, achievement, and control will ultimately leave us empty-handed. Life isn't about what we can obtain, but about what we already have, and learning to receive it from God with gratitude. Welcome to Ecclesiastes, life as gift, not gain. Today we're going to be embarking upon a new 12-week series going through the book of Ecclesiastes called Wise. Wise, uh, excuse me, living life as a gift and not as something to gain. Let me say that one more time. We're going to be going through a new series called Wise and going through the book of Ecclesiastes looking at living life as a gift and not as something to gain. As we introduce this book, the first thing we need to do at the very beginning is talk about, man, who is the author? Um, look at verse one with me. We have a hint there. It says, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. The Greek word for, Greek word for teacher or preacher is koheleth, which means one who has gathered people together to learn something, usually something new or fresh. I have to be honest with you that there are many different opinions about the authorship of this book, but I lean heavily towards uh, Solomon being the author of this book because I believe that the author's description seems to best fit Solomon's identity as we go throughout the book. Number one, Solomon is known as the wisest man to ever live, not because he was so wise, but because as you probably know or probably have seen or heard in in the scriptures, that Solomon asked God for wisdom, and God granted not only wisdom, but also power and great authority. Not only that, as we see in verse 1, that he was a son of David. Actually, he was the son who actually succeeded David in kingship. And then finally, we see that he was the one who was king in Jerusalem. And if if, if, if any of the points don't convince you, hopefully that last point will, that he was king in Jerusalem— because Solomon was able to serve under the reign of God, under a united kingdom, not a divided one. Therefore, he was able to be and to serve, as verse 1 says, as a king in Jerusalem. There are other thoughts that maybe he's a descendant of David, maybe not Solomon, maybe another son. Some say that there are two different people writing this book. The author that we see in verse 1 and also at the end And then there's the teacher. The teacher is not the same person as the author. And while the author remains anonymous, the teacher is the dominant voice throughout the entire book of Ecclesiastes. So listen, wherever you fall in in that category of options, listen, the main thing is this, is that regardless of where you fall, we must remember that this is the word of God. Amen? Amen. And consequently, we must adhere our lives, we must adhere our thinking, and we must adhere our beliefs to what is being taught by the one who has gathered us together to listen. So where do we find this book within the biblical genres of the Bible? Well, Ecclesiastes is part of what we call wisdom literature. The other two books that are also included within this are Job and Proverbs. 
Wisdom literature seeks to help us learn how to embrace abstract truths in a way that transform our real and concrete lives. Listen to what Pastor Habatu says in the African Bible commentary about Ecclesiastes. He says, Ecclesiastes is the most difficult book of the Bible to understand in terms of both its structure and its theology. The apparently unorthodox and pessimistic statements in the book have earned it the label, the black sheep of the Bible. Its inclusion in the canon of scriptures has been treated with great suspicion. So why is Ecclesiastes one of the most difficult books in the Bible? Well, there's two possibilities about this. Number one, wisdom literature is foreign to many in the evangelical tradition. Wisdom literature is foreign to many in the evangelical tradition. In other words, we are more comfortable with straight lines and rigid categories. However, Ecclesiastes comes along and destroys destroys our rigidity and our our need for straight lines. Number two, Ecclesiastes is profoundly philosophical. Can you raise your hand for me if you are a philosophical person, you love philosophy, anyone? All right, well, this we, we, next 12, thank you, thank you, Rain. The next 12 weeks, we are going to be sitting um, at your table, and you're going to be able to drink deeply. Each chapter requires deep reflection, and often, catch this, often there's no resolve to the problems that are being presented to us. Ecclesiastes is not always clear to understand. So listen, church, we must commit ourselves to learning within the context of community and with the posture of humility. In other words, what I'm saying to you is that we're about to go on a roller coaster. (laughs) And I need everyone, everyone, including myself, we got to be locked in because this book will require all of us, all of our voices, listening to the voice of God to understand completely the message he wants us to receive from this book. See, Ecclesiastes is designed to ask and indirectly answer specific questions related to what it means to fear the Lord in the world that he has made. Love what David Gibson says about the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, Ecclesiastes is a meditation on what it means to be alive in the world that God made and called good, yet, which has also gone very wrong, often in catastrophic ways. So why are we going through this book? Why are we going to spend the next 12 weeks of our study looking at a book that's hard to understand, looking at at one of the hardest books in the scripture? Let me give you two reasons for this. Number one, the first reason why we're doing this as a church is because Ecclesiastes is perhaps the single most influential work of philosophy in world history. Solomon argues that every human has a kind of black hole within their soul. They they have a gaping void, if you will, demanding to be filled by someone or something. I love what Pastor Pastor and teacher Louis Giglio says about this. He says, worship is simply giving back God his breath. In other words, Solomon argues through this that we are all called to worship something or someone, but the choice is yours, whom you will submit yourself to in worship. 
There's essentially five ways to fill the voids of life. There's five ways to fill the voids of life. And all of us are doing this to some degree or another. Here's the first way to fill the void of life. One is the, we have philosophy to fill our minds. Number two, we have hedonism to fill our bodies. Number three, we have materialism to fill our bank accounts. Number four, we have ethics to fill our conscience. And number five, we have religion to fill our souls. See, Ecclesiastes is not only perhaps the most influential work of philosophy in world history. It's not the only reason why we're studying this book. But number two, this is where the rubber hits the road for us as a church, is that Ecclesiastes works well into our value of maturity. If you're visiting us for the first time, we have three values as a church that we are always looking to implement and try to become and to grow in. And those values are maturity, multi-ethnicity, and missionality. And right now, since the beginning of January of this year, we've embarked on learning through various means what it means to grow into Christian maturity. We've looked at the 50 core truths of the Christian faith with Dr. Greg Allison. We are right now having a book study through the book of James. We just ended a sermon series on the little epistle of Titus. And now we venture into this 12-week series on Ecclesiastes. Church, can I be honest with you for a minute? I hate when people say that, so I, I'm sorry for saying that. But can I, can I be real with you as the young people say? You know, I, I want to be a church that welcomes doubts, fears, and difficult conversations. I want us to be a church that grows accustomed to wrestling with the unknown and with the uncertain. Why do you say that, Pastor Fields? Well, it's because the God of the Bible welcomes this type of wrestling for us to endure. You see, the God of the Bible doesn't shame you for having questions and doubts. Let me repeat that again. The God of the Bible doesn't shame you for having questions and doubts. But he uniquely answers our questions and he welcomes our doubts with much grace, humility, and overwhelming love and compassion. I love what Psalm 145, 8 talks about the character of God. It says, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and rich in love. So how does this book compare to other wisdom literature such as Proverbs? <laughs> well, to fully understand this book, listen, we can't read Ecclesiastes like we read Proverbs. You see, while the book of Proverbs seeks to give concrete principles to live a life that is generally true, Ecclesiastes often reflects upon the exceptions within, a life, within life that aren't general. In other words, Ecclesiastes sets the, ex, ex, the expectation for what we can expect from life, especially when life is unpredictable. Unlike Proverbs, Ecclesiastes is a book that will provoke us. It will disturb, disturb us, and at times it will be disorienting for us. Nevertheless, it is a much-needed book because it gives us a raw, unfiltered look at life as it really is. 
It's kind of like that honest friend that tells you the truth all the time, even when you don't necessarily want to hear it. Or maybe that old, I should say old, maybe that older person in your life who gives you great wisdom and care, maybe when you don't want it or need it. Church family, this is the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me give you three major lessons that we're going to learn in the next 12 weeks. Number one, one, one major lesson we're going to learn is this. You are not in control of anything. As hard as that is to acknowledge and as hard as that to submit ourselves to, Ecclesiastes reminds us of this time and time again, that you are not in control of anything. Number two, life is short and you will die very soon. Listen, if, if, if that depresses you, stay with me, stick with me. We will talk through it. But it's, it's the truth of what Ecclesiastes teaches. And then lastly, but definitely not least, don't be afraid to ask hard questions of God and, re- and receive hard answers from him. Would you pray with me? Father God, we do love you and thank you. We ask that you would be with us as we enter into this 12-week series on the book of Ecclesiastes. We thank you, God, that you go before us and you will make your word seen, known, and heard. As always, take my little and make much of it. Glorify yourself as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, one of the greatest questions of our lifetime is this. Who will be the next Jeopardy host? (laughs) You know, in November 2020, Alex Trebek, the 37-year-long host of Jeopardy, died of pancreatic cancer. And the television world has been in a tailspin ever since. And much like the game of Jeopardy, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 follows the typical order of providing the answer before it provides the question. Look with me at verse 3 as we review the primary question in the book of Ecclesiastes. Verse 3 reads as follows. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? The Greek word for gain is an economic term. It is used with reference to budget surplus, and it is used over 18 times in the book of the Ecclesiastes. In other words, the word gain here is observable evidence that something worthwhile has been done or something worthwhile has been accomplished. Notice with me that in the eyes of Solomon, the purpose of life is to make your life count for something. You want to make your life meaningful. You want to have a surplus and not a deficit at the end of your life. And this is the big question of Ecclesiastes. What gain, what advantage, what surplus, what profit is there in life? It's a hard question. Now, before you discredit this question by giving pious Sunday school-like answers, I want us to be honest with ourselves that this question is not too foreign from our thinking. This question is not too foreign from our rationale or even our experience. Let's admit that after enduring a year within a global pandemic, let me say that again, a global pandemic, 
called COVID-19, we've all pondered this question or something similar. Is there any point in life? It's a good reminder for us that if you're struggling to connect your life with God's purposes, then my friend, my brother, my sister, Ecclesiastes is the book for you. Because Solomon not only understands what you're going through, but he can also empathize with your situation. Look with me at verse 4. Listen what to the words of Solomon. He says, a generation comes and a generation, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Think about it with me for a moment. College students, raise your hands. How many college students do we have or people who are in school? Anyone? Raise your hand. Nice and hi. Yes. Thank you, Terrell. I see. I know you're in school. That's awesome. You're not a college student, but you will be by God's grace. College students, we go to school. You earn a degree. You get a good job and you retire. <laughs> what's the profit, right? What, what, what's the meaning of it? Working professionals, you, you send out thousands of resumes. You, you finally find a job. You get a promotion. You get a raise. And then you retire. Stay-at-home parents, you wash, cook, clean, and repeat, and do that over and over and over again. Wash, cook, clean, and repeat. Jolly elders, you retire. You watch family and friends leave your life with or without your permission. You long for friendship, and then you go to be with the Lord. I think Solomon has something to this question when he asks, what gain is there in life. So what's the purpose? What's the gain? What do we really gain from life? Look with me at verse two for the answer. He says it very plainly. He says, absolutely futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. This is our answer. Listen, I know it's not what you want. (laughs) I know it's not what you expected, but this is the answer that the teacher gives us about the gain that we get, the, the advantage, the surplus, the profit that we get out of life. He says, everything is futile. The Greek word for futility here is hevel, which basically means a vapor or a breath. But it comes to mean a whisper of vapor, a puff of wind, or a mere breath. In other words, Hevel doesn't mean that life is utterly worthless. Please hear me when I say this. Solomon is not saying that life is utterly worthless. What Solomon is applying is that life has fleeting value. What Solomon is applying is that life has little to no value when set against something greater than itself. It's like you going, um, we just, we just uh, broke down and bought my daughter a phone uh, like two weeks ago. I'm, she's so excited about that. I'm excited for her um, that she has a new phone. But it's like going to the Apple store and buying the iPhone 12 the day before the iPhone 13 comes out. <laughs> it's kind of like, I'm really happy to get a phone, but guess what? Something's better coming tomorrow, right? So, so why waste my money today to get a phone that I really want when something better is coming tomorrow? This is the idea that we should get 
in this word. This word futility or vanity is a major theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it literally frames the entire book in both the beginning and also at the end. Remember verse two of chapter one? Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. Fast forward to chapter 12, verse eight. Listen how he ends the book. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. See, this word futility or vanity is used over 38 times in this book. And it can be characterized as the following. It it can be characterized like a vapor. I I don't smoke, but think of if you've been around someone who smokes or maybe if you smoked in the past, think of cigar smoke or cigarette smoke. If you like to garden, if if that's kind of your your cup of tea, think about um, when you get a spray bottle and you spray your flowers down in the the summer heat. It's like mist from a spray bottle. And what the, what, the, what the imagery that Solomon wants us to get is that life goes away quickly. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. It's like vapor. It's like smoke. It, it has a, a substance of form, but when you try to grab upon it, you, you can never really grasp it. It can be seen, but it can't really be obtained. Not only is life like a vapor, but life is temporary. Life has no lasting value. Life's value is only in the moment, and there's no meaning or value beyond the grave. And thirdly, he characterized this word, characterized, that life is absurd. (laughs) In other words, life is ridiculous. It doesn't make sense, and it has no known purpose. Solomon is getting us to acknowledge that life has a purpose that extends beyond our knowledge and our expertise. If we're honest with ourselves, I think we can say amen to that because we experience both the best from this life as well as the worst from this life without regard for your plans, your goals, or even your achievements. Everybody experiences brokenness. Age will not keep you from it. Beauty will not keep you from it. A good job won't keep you from it. A wonderful family won't keep you from it. A wonderful marriage will not keep you from it. All of us will experience brokenness within this world. Love what Dave Gibson says about this. He says, everything is transitory, fleeting, passing, temporary, and therefore has no lasting value. People are caught in the trap of the absurd and pure, empty pleasures, and they build their lives on it. Excuse me, and they build their lives on lies. Solomon presents his first witness. So to help us to understand and get to the point, Solomon brings up his first witness to prove life's futile ways. The the first person that he brings to the witness stand is something that's very familiar to all of us, but we often overlook. He brings to us creation. Look with me in verses 4b through verse 7. Listen to the words of Solomon as he says, gives us this understanding of his first witness. He says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets 
panting, it returns to the place where it rises, gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning goes the wind, and the wind returns in its cycles. All the, all the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full to the place where the stream flows. There they flow again. See, like a skilled and suave prosecuting eternity, attorney, after making such a strong opening statement, Solomon gives us two pieces of evidence that leads us to his great conclusion that everything is futile. He starts with curation, and he uses the four elements, earth, wind, fire, and water, to justify his growing frustration within the world. Look with me in 4b. He says, again, a generation goes and a generation comes, but what? But the earth remains forever. He he continues in verses 5 through 7. The sun rises and the sun sets. It passes to the place where it rises, gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning goes the wind. And the wind returns in its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. So why is life futile, empty, and void? Why is everything futile? Notice with me the reason that Solomon gives us. The first reason, he talks about the revolution of life. He's saying that creation is constantly in motion. Creation is constantly in motion, yet nothing seems to be accomplished. And remember his first premise at the very beginning. That, that, that the premise of life is to make something out of life, to have a surplus, to have a gain, right? To have something to obtain. And, and Solomon is perplexed that even in creation, even in the very, the very nature of creation, creation is constantly in motion, yet seemingly nothing is being accomplished. His premise is this. That much like life, there's constant activity within God's creation, yet nothing changes. Things appear to change. Things appear to grow. Things appear to develop, but they never actually do. In other words, the wind seems to give the appearance of producing great activity, but when observed closely, it's only going in circles. The sun rises in the east and it sets in the west, sharing its beautiful glory with us for 12 hours in a day. But at some point, we're not going to see the sun. And if we do see it, it's only for a limited amount of time, a limited amount of hours in a day. The streams flow constantly into the ocean like a faucet that you turn on that you cannot turn off. But the ocean is never full. Notice his frustration. Notice Solomon's frustration. He's frustrated with the thing that we often get frustrated with in our own lives. That the busyness of life, without, well, the busy, he sees the busyness of life without the result of change. And this frustrates Solomon. I see all this activity. I hear the wind gusting. I see the sun rising and I see it setting. I see all this activity, but there's no change. It's a good reminder for us as believers 
that the busyness of life will not automatically equate to change in one's life. Let me say that again, that the busyness of life will not automatically equate to change in one's life. Notice with me, the same endless cycle seen in nature is also experienced in our own daily lives. You wash, you wash dishes in the morning, only to find a sink full of dishes by, by the evening. You change a diaper knowing that you'll need to change it as soon as you feed the baby in about an hour. You spend all day washing and folding clothes, and the next day your hamper is still full. You cut the grass on Monday. It rains profusely Tuesday through Thursday, so you have to cut it again on Friday. You pay your bills this month, and in another 30 days, you have to pay the exact same bill in the exact same way with the exact same credit card. Everything is futile. It's futile. Guess what? Solomon gets it. If you are there, if you feel the futility, if you feel like you're running on a hamster wheel, if you feel like there's really no meaning or purpose in life, then Solomon is your guy. He gets you. He understands you. Look with me in verse 8 because he expressed these exact sentiments here in verse 8. He says, all things are wearisome. More than anyone can say, the eye is not satisfied by seeing or the ear filled with hearing. In other words, what he's saying here is that there's no regard for weariness. And the word weariness means that all our words are weary. <laughs> I love what John MacArthur says about this in his study Bible. He says, Solomon looks at the effect of repetitious, enduring activity in God's creation over many generations as compared to the brief, comparatively profitless activity of one man which fails to produce an enduring satisfaction, and he concludes that it is wearisome. In other words, we can't find meaning. We can't find satisfaction with the creation. The world cannot be simply explained or universally affected by human words. And here's the reality. Our words can't affect change like God's word. In verse 8, Solomon mentions that there's no regard. And in verses 9 through 10, he provides further evidence of his frustration by saying that things are always repeating. Look at with me in verses 9 and 10. He says, what has been done is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can someone say anything? Excuse me. Can one say about anything? Look, this is new. It has already existed in the ages before us. In other words, what Solomon's saying here is that things are always repeating. And therefore, there's nothing new under the sun that is able to fundamentally change the facts within our human condition. Now, I know someone's thinking, well, Pastor Fields, what about your, your example earlier about the iPhone? Isn't that a new invention? Isn't that, the world hasn't seen that before. What about the internet? What about computers? And I will say to you, absolutely, those things are new, but the way that those things were produced is not new. How did those things get produced? They got produced through innovation. 
It got produced through the human mind. It got produced through technology. Is technology new? No. Is the forms of technology new? Yes. (laughs) 2,000 years ago, we were riding by horseback to get where we needed to go or camel or whatever it was. Now we take airplanes and we take cars and we take boats. The objective is still being achieved, transportation. We just have new ways and new means, more efficient ways to get those things done. It's not new. It's just a new form for us to have greater efficiency. I love what Solomon says in verses 9 and 10. He says, what has been, that refers to our current circumstances. And he also says, what has been done, this refers to human activity in the past. Now, notice the problem here. Notice the problem. Solomon is saying nothing is new. He's also saying something else that we see in verse 11. Nothing will be remembered. Verse, look at verse 11 with me. It says, there is no remembrance of those who came before and those who will come after. There is also no remembrance by those who follow them. So riddle me this. Riddle me this. Who won? This is basketball season. I'm a basketball fan. I've been watching NBA playoffs. So that means that if you text me at probably about 11 or 12 o'clock, I'm probably up because I'm watching the game. Don't do that, please, unless you want to help me to uh, root on my, my, my favorite team. I won't let you know who that is. But you can talk to me afterwards if you want to know who that is. No, Pistons are not in the playoffs. Come on. Riddle me this. Who won the 1987 NBA championship? Don't cheat. Don't look at your phone. Don't look at your phone. Right? Who, who won the 1987 NBA championship? Better yet, who was the 1999 MVP of the league that year? Who was the rookie of the year in 1967? How many championships do the Utah Jazz have in their history? I think you get the point of what I'm trying to get at, that there's no remembrance, right? We don't just remember these things. We have to be reminded of these things. And it's a good reminder that at some point in history, you and I will be forgotten. No matter what impact you've had on the world, you will be forgotten at some point in history. And this is the dilemma that Solomon is facing. In other words, people will move on and fame and glory will not have lasting influence. Notice the irony here with me. The first first eyewitness that Solomon brought up creation, that he said, it's always moving, but nothing is being produced. I believe that Solomon is frustrated that in creation, everything is happening, but nothing is happening. But then when you look at God's special creation, when you look at human beings, right, everything is happening with us, right? We're, we're, We're super busy and we seem like we get things done, but our life is limited. We all have an expiration date. And furthermore, not only do we have an expiration date, we also won't be remembered for the things that we do. So Solomon is in between. (laughs) He's sitting between the weight of seeing the beauty of creation, but really not doing what what he thinks it should be doing. He's just doing the same thing every day. It's just remaining faithful, but not efficient. 
And then he's looking at the, 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 the problem of humanity that we are efficient, but we're not faithful. <laughs> and he's sitting between the weight of these two realities. I love what Peter Keefe says about this. He says, the point is simply this, without God, no, not just without God, for the speaker freak, speaks frequently of God. Without faith in God, no, not even that, for the author has faith in God. In fact, an unquestioning faith, never does he doubt God's existence. Rather, without the kind of faith in God that is larger than life and therefore worth dying for and therefore worth living for, without a faith that means trust and hope and love, without a, a lived relationship with God, life is vanity of vanities, the shadow of a shadow, a dream within a dream. Solomon invites us to feel the weight and gravity of the human condition. There's no regard, verses four and eight, this world cannot be explained or affected by, hum- by mere human words. Life is always repeating. Nothing new can, be, can change the trajectory of our human condition, verses 9 and 10. And there's no remembrance. Former, former things don't matter. Our fame won't have lasting significance, verse 11. So here's my question for us today, church, as we come to a close. How will you respond to this wisdom? How will you respond to this wisdom? Will you listen or will you keep on pretending? Will you continue to pretend that your life will be worth it if only you get that promotion, land that great job, get accepted into the school of choice, write that great book? Will we go on, will we go on pretending that your life will have meaning if only you obtain that executive position? If you could just change your vocation, or maybe even that, better yet, maybe get out of your marriage. If you could travel more, then, then maybe life would be more meaningful. Will we keep on pretending that your children will be successful if you could only move out of that new house, uh, move into a new house and into that new neighborhood? Oh, and then, then if you can do that, then you'll finally be happy and you'll never ever move again. Will we go on pretending that your life will be completely different if you could just end this relationship and start a new one? Oh, once you do that, then you'll, you'll never feel trapped again. Will we keep on pretending that our financial woes will be completely over and our hearts will be fully satisfied if we just earned X amount of more dollars in our salary? Will we go on pretending that we will finally experience peace and quiet once you get through this week's pile of washing dishes and folding clothes and changing of diapers? Once you get through buying everything on your grocery list and enduring through this last week of school before Memorial Day weekend? Because, hey, after Memorial Day weekend, everything is going to be fine. Then you'll be able to have rest. Church, the book of Ecclesiastes invites us to stop pretending to stop hiding behind the things that we try to find satisfaction in that are not God. So if you're done pretending, I invite you to listen. <laughs> listen to the words of this teacher. Listen to the words that he shares with us. Listen to how he helps us to understand that everything is meaningless. It is futile. Because once we get there, 
And once we get to that point, then we can cast out, we're more clearly able to cast our eyes on the one who is meaningful and the one who provides meaning and the one who gives us purpose. Three points of application for you today, and then I'm done. Number one, I believe God is encouraging us to find meaning beyond ourselves. If you are only finding meaning within you, if you are the sole arbiter of truth and justice, if everything that's right begins and ends with you, you are dead wrong. And you need to repent before God our King. God is encouraging us to find meaning beyond ourselves. Number two, God is reminding us to invite him into our lives to help make sense of life. Living life without being connected to God, looking at life apart from God will cause us to stumble and fall every single time. If that's you, I encourage you, look to your Lord, repent, and turn away from our self-sufficiency and turn to the God of all creation. And number three, God invites us to look beyond this life to make sense of our lives. There's a very subtle key that I can't go into great detail today, but there's there's this clause that is used over 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, under the sun. And it's a good reminder for us in verse three, he says, what does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? Maybe God is graciously inviting us to lift our heads from underneath the sun to look towards the one who is beyond the sun, to look to the God of all creation, to humble ourselves. Everything under the sun is futile. It is meaningless. You cannot find purpose in this life. There's a creator and his son that he sent to this earth. His name is Jesus. And he came to this life through a virgin's womb and he lived a sinless life for you. He did miracles and he taught very, he taught with the authority of as if he was God himself because he was God himself. He was God in flesh. John says we beheld his glory. Full of, this glory was full of God and full of, full of grace and full of truth. Will you look to him today? Will you see him as being glorious? Will you turn to the one whom God has sent from the beauties of heaven in order to make sense out of this senseless life that we live? I encourage and I implore you to look to Jesus as your answer. Psalm 1912 says it this way, teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. This is my prayer for us. This is my prayer for me, and this is my prayer for us as a church. Will you pray with me? Father, we do love you and thank you. You're a good God and King in every way. We ask, God, that you would be with us even now. God, we confess that we have found and tried to find satisfaction with things underneath the sun. 
We try to find meaning and purpose in our jobs or in our marriages, in our travels. Try to find job and purposes in our promotions or in the plans that we have in this life. But Lord, we lay those things at your feet and we say, God, if we have used those things as an idol, if we have looked to those things more so than we've looked to you, God, forgive us. Forgive us, God. God, allow our hearts to be reminded of the grace it is to know you and to be seen by you and to be loved by you. We cannot find meaning or purpose in this life apart from you, the creator of all things. So Father, we look to you even now and ask, Lord, that you would not only forgive us, but you would restore us. Restore us like a weaning child at the side of, his, of, of, his, of, of its mother, looking to its mother for every source of nourishment, depending on her for every aspect of his or her life. God, may we be like that child before you. Jesus, if there's someone in the sound of my voice who doesn't know you, who is living life under the, un, apart from the power and authority of Jesus, would you draw them to yourself now? Would you cause them to confess their sins And would you allow them to look to Jesus and find his salvation to be just what they need, to have fulfillment and to be made whole even now? We love you and thank you for the work that you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time as a church, we're going to take communion together. This meal is not just a piece of bread and uh, not just a piece of bread and not just juice to drink. This meal speaks to the reality of God being our all-sufficient king. He alone has fully and eternally pardoned our sins, and he alone has given himself as a sacrifice, as our peace offering before God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and blessed it and gave it to his disciples and said, eat, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Let us take and eat that bread together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my new covenant, which poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let us take and drink of that cup together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus went on to say that I will not drink from the fruit of this vine from now until the day I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Amen. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.